you got your Bibles tonight, go ahead and begin to find 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to study just for a few moments tonight. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read several verses here. I want to talk for just a moment or two on what I've entitled Becoming a Vessel of Honor. Becoming a Vessel of Honor. 2 Timothy chapter 2. I know... uh, Both Matt and Jerry do a great job back there. And uh, if you did not bring your Bible, they'll probably give you uh, the verses on the screen overhead. But I hope you brought your Bible. Wednesday night's a good night to bring it because it just gives you opportunity to keep your fingers nimble. I just, there's something about a book. And uh, it's still the same scripture on the screen, but I do think it's good uh, when you get used to just opening up the book. So 2 Timothy 2, beginning with verse 19, we read, Nevertheless, The solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. I'm going to stop there for just a moment. You you know, it's easy to fool people. I I don't remember exactly how Abraham uh, Lincoln put that phrase. You can fool some of the people all the time. And, and, and you can pool all the people some of the time, some of the people all of the time. But, but the last thing was, you, well, bottom line was you can't fool everybody forever and you can't fool God. I didn't get the quotation right. So everyone who listens on iTunes will be sending me an email to let me know how that quotation goes. But the point being here, Paul says, is that the Lord knows... Who are his. He knows. And and he puts it in context by saying, uh, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Now, there are things the Bible says by direct reference, and then there are things the Bible says by inference. And this is one of those verses, by inference, we we can deduce several things. Number one is we can deduce that if he's saying, let everyone who named the name of Christ depart from iniquity, that means that some who are naming the name of Christ are probably in iniquity. And that's why he says the Lord knows those who are his. Because you can fool some, but you can't ultimately uh, fool him. So that's the, that's the exhortation. Then he begins to give this illustration in verse 20. He says, but in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Verse 21, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So we're going to talk about becoming a vessel of honor. Now, Paul is talking to Timothy. Timothy's a young guy. He's a fairly young pastor, fairly new at this. When Paul writes this particular letter, he pastored in Ephesus. It's interesting how much time Paul spent with the church at Ephesus. He writes a whole letter to the church, and then he writes two different letters here to Timothy, who gives oversight to this particular church. And he begins to speak to them about what a great house has in it, And what solid foundations need to take place. And he says to him, sadly, that there are two types of vessels in every church. It's on the screen overhead. There are two types 
of vessels. Number one, he says there are these vessels of honor. The second one, he says, is that there are vessels of dishonor. Now, that's pretty easy, isn't it? A or B, one or two. And uh, the problem in our current church era is that we have confused at times, I think, these, these two vessels. Now, let me explain this. I don't know, you women will identify with this probably quicker than us men, but there is a difference between a Dixie cup and a crystal goblet. Isn't that true? There's a difference between the, the good china and, you know, the paper plate. Now, for men, sometimes it doesn't matter. You know, uh, when the, whenever the women of power have an event, I'm always amazed at what happens. This place is transformed. You have nice things all around. I mean, it's just, it's nice. That's, that's how ladies like it. There's nothing wrong with that. If you have guests at your house, you bring out the good stuff, the nice stuff. Nothing wrong with that. Men don't care. Men, men would eat in the garbage dump. They would eat the garbage, even if it, it is. Men don't care. Men don't care if it's in paper cups, you know, crystal goblets. They would prefer the paper cup, to be honest with you. That's, that's pretty much how they look at things. They don't need plates. If it's finger food, they'll use their fingers. So that's just guys. That's how it works with guys. But guys, you've got to tune in and just listen at this point because Paul's using this illustration. It's very important. He says that there are vessels within the life of the church. Now, now a Dixie cup and a crystal goblet will both hold something. Now, they both are vessels. But the Scripture tells us that, that one is a vessel of honor and the other is really a vessel of, of dishonor. And if you wish to be a vessel of honor, then the Scripture tells us that you must cleanse yourself. Now, there are several times in Scripture you'll find that particular phrase, cleanse yourself. We see it here in verse 21. He says, if you cleanse yourself, cleanse, if he cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor. And so there's something he says that he can cleanse himself from and he can become the crystal goblet. In 2 Corinthians 7.1, it says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, think about all of your destiny. Think about all the things that God has ever spoken to you. Think about all the good things that he has for you. Think about all the promises that are both uh, codified in his word by way of healing, uh, by way of deliverance, just by way of prospering. But think of those personal promises that you may have received. Gather up all those promises. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us, what? Cleanse ourselves from all... Now, isn't that cool, a cool word? It doesn't say from some, does not doesn't even say from much or most. It says, but cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, uh, perfecting, and what that word perfecting means, in the Scripture, it doesn't really mean airless. The biblical word perfect doesn't mean airless, kind of like we have come to understand it to mean. Perf perfecting means completing. Completing holiness. Now, completing means that we're not complete, but we are completing in other words, we're in, we're a work in progress. We're completing some things in our life, but that's what he says. He says, go forward, completing holiness, uh, in the fear of God. And, and Paul writes to Timothy and he says, he says, this is what it's going to take to be useful for the master and prepared for every good work. Now, this is really important. I know God will use anybody. And oftentimes, unfortunately, it seems like 
he has to choose those least likely. Uh, sometimes he chooses to use those that, that uh, in no way, shape, or form are in any way uh, prepared to be used by him. God would really like to use people, though, that have a heart for him and that, that you know, have character and that have integrity. And, I, and I'm going to tell you why. It's because, you know, God, how do I want to say this? You know, God's lived a long time. You know, you know, he didn't just fall off the turnip truck. I mean, I'm not belittling the Lord. I'm just simply saying, think about the Lord. Think about how much the Lord would love to raise people up and use them in amazing ways. Use them in visible ways. Use them in influential ways. Think about that for just a minute. Think about how very much he would like to raise up uh, another uh, Moses or another Joshua. He'd like to raise up prophets. He'd love to raise up perhaps another a missionary apostle like Paul, a Timothy, a John. I mean, we could go through all the names in the scripture of those that he raised up in order to use for his glory and in mighty ways. But listen to me, when we're raised up and we're vessels of dishonor, what happens is, is if we collapse, the ripple effect takes out so many, many people behind us. And so he looks at his people and he says, hey, cleanse yourself, become a vessel of honor. So I can pour things into you that will enable you to have much to give to others, that will have much to offer others. And, and so we need to become a vessel of honor. And I believe God is calling a people to do exactly that, to be separated unto him for a good work. Uh, we have people in ministry that have great skills and talents and anointing. And, you know, when you have great skills and anointing, and even talent, it can cause you, because of that gifting, to look mature. Because you're so good at what you do. I mean, I'm amazed at times when I watch just, just celebrities, and whether they be politicians, or whether they be uh, athletes, or whether they be Hollywood celebrities, actors, actresses. I, I, I am amazed at times at their craft, and how well they do what they do. And it's amazing. And, and there's something even uh, in my psyche that when I see that, it automatically makes me think that if they've got their act together in that talent or in that gift, that, that their whole life has to be together. But you do realize that there are lots of people who are highly skilled, highly gifted, highly talented. And what they do, they do very well. But the rest of their life is like hyper dysfunctional. I mean, you do realize that. And, and unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, I, I would say fortunately, God, uh, as he works in us, wants all of life, wants us to be whole. Because you see, Christianity and the ministry isn't just what we say or isn't just the gift that we, that we are able to, to give or to participate in. Christianity is about our very life. It's who we are. It's not what we do. Not just giving you words that are that may be accurate, but but you're literally pouring yourself into people. That's what relationship is all about, and and so it's very very important that that your life has some sense of circumscription to it. It has some sense of character to it, in order that that you can be that vessel that can even pour into other people. You know, I, I just wrote down here. I said Adolf Hitler was a gifted orator. I mean, Hitler, Hitler could mesmerize the masses uh, with his ability to speak 
such a gift. He was able to mobilize a nation to do that which was evil in his gift, his talent, his skill. He was, he was full, was he not, of the devil. Isn't that right? Just full of the devil, but yet he could lead, mesmerize a nation. I guess that may be the greatest point you could make, that, that we can have all kinds of gifts, but you can still be full of the devil. So the Scripture, uh, all through the Scripture, we find these ways, these precepts, in order uh, to, to bring credibility and character to our life, to cleanse ourselves. Now, I understand, and listen to me very carefully, and most of you know this already, I believe that we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen? There's nothing we can do. I can't, you can't, none of us can get... We, we, we don't merit anything before God. I didn't get saved on my own. God initiated the whole deal. He did it in your life too. You did not have the propensity to do enough work, to do enough good in order to merit anything from God. All right, so we've got that settled, right? Having said that, listen to me now. Having said that and understanding that the grace of God not only declares you righteous, but it works in you His righteousness. It's not that you are just looked at differently, but that God literally has put within you a new heart upon which he has written on your heart, his statutes and his ways. You do understand that once we are saved, not of works, nothing we did at that point, we've been empowered by God. Now it's not my power, but we've been empowered by God in order to live for him. I can't live for him, but he, he can empower me to live for him. Now, that's good news. That's why this is good news business. So when we begin to say, cleanse yourself, I'm not saying that somehow you're making yourself righteous. Because what happens if you aren't careful, it will become self-righteousness. And believe me, I've grown up in legalism and I grew up in self-righteousness. And I, I understand what that is. I can smell that. But at the same time, we're living in an era where there's such presumption upon the work of grace that many people, they, they, there's, no, there's no compulsion, there's no drive, there's no desire to live in such a way that we are, as the Word says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, that doesn't mean I have to be weird or I have to be a monk and go off to some monastic setting and, and, and try to be holy. We're not saying that. But what we are saying is, is that we have to allow God to work in us in such form and fashion that we can begin to be cleansed from the stuff we don't need on us in order that we can be a vessel that can be used for him. Are you following me? Just shake your head like this. If you can't say amen, just nod at me every now and then. All right? Because I, I think you're listening, but that's just helpful to hear that. So what is that? How do you cleanse yourself? What do we do? How does that work? Can I just share with you? I'm going to share with you this group that has always, they've been a group that has fascinated me uh, since I was an early Christian, and they were called the Nazarites. Now, if, if, again, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Numbers chapter 6. If you want to learn more about the Nazarites, you can read about them in Numbers chapter 6. But, but whenever I read about them, I see a great template there of possibility as to what it may mean to be used greatly by God. Now, listen to me. I'll, I'll share all, all the different ones, but there was, there was a group of people all through the New Testament that God used greatly that at least at some time in their life entered into what is called the vow of the Nazarite. And God used them massively. 
Numbers chapter 6, the Nazarites, and an interesting group of people. Uh, I don't know if we can read the whole thing. Uh, well, can you listen fast? I may read fast. All right. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel, say to them, whether either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine, similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head. Until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. I can tell you that one would be fairly easy for me to keep, I think. He shall not make himself unclean, even, he says, for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. Now, here's the deal. Follow me here. The word Nazarite generally denotes one who is separated to God. You've been separated to God for his service. Now, uh, there is no specific mention of Nazarites that we can find. If there is, I, I couldn't locate it. If it's there, it, it will be new to me. But, but you don't find Nazarites until you get to Samson. And that's when you begin to hear that word come up again with Samson. However, reading it here in Numbers, we, we have to know that they evidently existed uh, before that time, and they existed, obviously, during the time of Moses. And from what we can get from all this is that people took Nazarite vows for various lengths of time. And most of the time, it was put upon the individual to choose how long they were going to take this vow uh, before the Lord. And most vows, as I have come to understand, lasted somewhere between 30 and a hundred days, somewhere between a month and, and probably three months. Now, there were people in the Bible that took lifetime vows. Samson was one of those that took a lifetime vow. In fact, it was made upon Samson even from the womb. So he was a lifetime Nazarite. Samuel was a lifetime Nazarite. We know that John the Baptist was a lifetime Nazarite. I think you could make a great case uh, with Elijah and Elisha. I think you could make a case that if not lifetime Nazarites, they spent time under a Nazarite vow. Uh, we know that Paul uh, spent time with a Nazarite vow as well. And, and it well may be that our Savior did as well. We, we don't know this. And, and again, that's just some conjecture. But, but evidently, the Nazarite vow entered into the New Testament as well. Now, there were basically three aspects to the vow that we'll just go back and we'll review very quickly. It says here that there was an abstinence from strong drink. In fact, it really had everything to do with the grape. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. It included grapes and raisins and vinegar, which at times was used or derived from these things. But they would abstain from either if they took a lifetime. Of course, it was a lifetime vow. If not, it was that period of time. Number two, we see that there was no cutting of the hair. Again, I will, I will make some application. And then number three, there was absolute avoidance of dead bodies, even your family members. If your family member, a family member were to have died during that period of a Nazarite vow, you could not go near them. I mean, that's significant, isn't it? And, and we'll, we'll make the leap here in just a moment. 
When the person came out of this Nazarite vow, uh, the person had to present himself. They would actually, when they ended the vow period, they would present themselves at the sanctuary and they would present sacrifices unto the Lord. And it was through that that they would be released properly from the vow that they had taken. Now, the question is that we've kind of covered that very, very quickly and briefly. The question is, how do you leap from Numbers chapter 6 under a new covenant And how does all this work together when it comes to cleansing ourselves? Now, follow me when I say this. I'm finding a template. Nowhere in the the New Testament can I find an exact verse that says, this is how you cleanse yourself. All right? We know the blood cleanses. We know God cleanses. We know all the works that He can do in our life. But there are these moments, Paul says, that we must obviously being empowered by the Lord, cleanse ourselves. Where is that? Where do we find that? And oftentimes we go back and find that template in the Old Testament. So let's start translating that. Paul, which we know was the apostle of grace, practiced this and mentions it on occasion. Let's look at Acts 18.18. Can you post that? It uh, said, So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at uh, Centria for he, had, for he had taken a vow. He had taken a vow. And I, I believe this indicates that he spent some time under a Nazarite vow at the end of the vow where it said that he couldn't cut his hair, that it was over, and now it was an appropriate time that he could go back again to what we might consider normal existence. In Acts 21... We could go to the next one. Acts 21, beginning with 23. Therefore, uh, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Next verse. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were formed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Next verse. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Next verse. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Here's how I understand that passage. As Paul is beginning to give instruction with what to do with these new Gentile believers, they they aren't going to understand the practices of Judaism. They aren't going to understand Nazarite vows and all the rest. So he simply says, this isn't going to be thrusted on them. However, having said that, that does not absolve them, as you read in those passages, from practicing the things that beget holiness. I mean, he says that. Now, he goes, the others are going to come and we're stepping out of this vow again and we'll do what we need to do. But, but we're not thrusting something that people don't totally understand upon them. So most of us in this room tonight are Gentiles, in the sense you may have some Jewish background. If you have Jewish in your background, then pardon me for presuming you're a Gentile. But the rest of us are Gentiles. And being Gentiles, that doesn't mean that we function under the law or we function under all the prescribed things that the Old Covenant gives us. That's why I said the Nazarite vow is not something we enter into because... That's how we're going to please God. But it's a template, so to speak, a template of what it may mean in order for us to begin under New Testament grace and empowerment to begin to cleanse ourselves and perfecting holiness that we might be a vessel of honor. So let me just give you some things that have just come to my mind in this uh, particular uh, revelation. Number one, let's just post it there. Why? 
Now, let me just say this. The Bible doesn't teach uh, teetotalism. You've heard me say this before. It is, it is hard to make a case out of the Scripture for absolute total abstinence when it comes to things like wine or alcohol. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that the Lord endorses uh, us being drunks. Scripture's clear that that's, that's, that's not to be found either. But, but wine in general... Um, in that time period, uh, was of such was of such weakness that literally to get to get buzzed off it, you'd have to drink it and, and purge yourself and drink it and purge yourself and drink it and purge yourself until finally you built up the alcohol content that you could catch a buzz off this stuff. So anybody that tells you the stuff you buy off the shelves at anywhere from twelve to twenty percent alcohol content is apples for apples as to what you find in the scripture is not being honest before God. Okay, I, I, I'm honest enough to say you can't, you can't teach absolute teetotalism, but I'm just telling you, you, you can't go belly up to the bar and drink yourself 80 proof, 90 proof alcohol and think somehow or another you're functioning under what they did here. That's not true either, all right? And in the day and age we live in, this is an issue still, all right? But the point I believe that's trying to be made here is that it represents, what it represented for the Nazarite was that when they partook, what happens is it diminishes our ability to exercise restraint. It represents a lack of self-control. It, it would represent all of the world's temptations or the cup of unrighteous passions. How many of you know, those of you who remember back to your B.C. days, and hopefully these are B.C. memories. But some of you remember. I remember. I got saved when I was like 18, 19 years old. And I still clearly remember that you would do things buzzed that you wouldn't do in your right mind. Isn't that true? Some of you know. I mean, some of you that you don't want to shake your head, but I know you know what I'm talking about. You get, you get, you get a few shots in you, and you've you got the lampshade on your head, and you're the party animal. You do things that you would never do under any other circumstance. Why is that? It's because, it's because your self-control button was neutralized by that. And so the Nazarite would go into this saying, I'm not going to have anything in my life that's going to neutralize my self-control button. In fact, the whole purpose of the Nazarite vow was to begin to demonstrate restraint and to demonstrate self-control. Not just to be disciplined for discipline's sake, but to be disciplined for the purposes of God. Are you following me there? All right? So it's a separation from anything that causes your passions to be violated. In fact, raisins and grapes, he says here, represent even the smallest of things. I think that's interesting. The smallest of things that can be the appearance of evil. Now, again, Christ isn't requiring us some monastic lifestyle, but, but I do think it is a template, again, uh, that instructs us that we need to lose the attitude of seeing how close we can get uh, to our boat, our, uh, in our boat, and, and sailing it up to the reef of the world's temptations without sinking our boat. Samson's problem, as you'll recall, was that he played too close to the sin line. You know the story of Samson. God's Word tells us that we're to flee from the very appearance of evil. So let me just give you just some practical considerations. When was the last time you just evaluated your life and asked yourself the question, am I, am I coming too close to a line that's just not good for me? It doesn't honor God. It doesn't please God. Listen, I can, I can give you some suggestions 
But I'm to the place now where I just feel like I'm a Johnny one note. And so I'm not even going to do that. I'm just going to say, has the Holy Spirit ever talked to you about anything in your life that that maybe he won't talk with anyone else about, but he is talking with you about. And he's saying you need to stay away from this particular line. Think about that. I mean, it's not about obeying me, but when are we going to obey God and hear God say in this regard? I mean, is there something that's just totally out of bounds, inappropriate? And you know it is, and I've got to stay away from it. Well, I believe that's what this is, because you know if you get too close, the restraint buttons, the self-control buttons are pushed, and, and you end up being in a ditch. I think that's, that's one of the templates we can apply to our life when it comes to cleansing ourselves. Cleansing ourselves. There are some things we just need to cleanse ourselves from. I mean, we just... We just got to cleanse our, you know, there's maybe some shows you watch. You say, well, other people get to watch them. Well, okay, let, God may talk to them about that, but you're not cleansing them. You're cleansing you. What do you got? You cleanse yourself. Let's get ourself cleansed. All right? Cleanse yourself. All right, secondly, the no cutting of hair. Got to rush. No cutting of hair. Now, it's interesting. If you'll see it in 1 Corinthians 11, they had this whole thing about the hair and, you know, shaving the head and, and head covering. But, but hair oftentimes represents a symbol of, of being under authority. It, it had a symbol of covering. And a Nazarite's hair symbolized a separation to God's direct authority in their life. I, I don't think it would be too far uh, to, uh, to stretch the concept to suggest that, that God uses delegated authority as well. And I just think it has images of whether or not we are covered and whether we're under authority. Now, to not groom in this way, because uh, even in those days, they would cut their hair and they would groom themselves. But to just let your hair go. You understand John the Baptist, when he came out of the, when he came out of the wilderness and, you know, he was in his leather stuff and, and he was tanned and wrinkled and he had this wild hair. You understand, that was a, he was one wild-looking dude. I mean, I mean, that's not, ex- you know... You wouldn't say come do a meeting at our church. But one of the reasons that happens is, is because you understand to be that unkept is really a demonstration of humility. I, what John the Baptist literally was saying was, I don't have to look like the rest of the world. Can you imagine looking like John the Baptist? Look, now, nowadays you might fit in. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe it would be different. But again, I just, I just think it, it's understanding, hey, God gets to speak to me in, in the way I look. He gets to speak to me in the way I dress. He gets to speak to me in the way I present myself. He gets to speak to me. I don't have to look, I don't have to look like Hollywood. I don't have to look like I'm going to cleanse myself. I'm under his authority. I'm not, I'm not under the world's authority. I'm under his authority. And then leaping over, don't touch any dead thing. Number three, not touching a dead body. It represents avoiding those things that are dead or that kill and loving those things that bring life. That was literally what was being represented there. The Lord even goes so far as to say that you'll not touch even a loved one. Now, that seemed really brutal to me because think about that. If you had a family member that died during this particular time period. But, you know, in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, verse 51, can you post that? Matt, Luke 12, 51 says, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all but rather division. Next verse. 52, 52. Can we get 52? 
All right, there we go. For, for from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three. Next verse. <laughs> there we go. Father will be divided against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What was Jesus saying? Was Jesus anti-family? Well, no. We all know Jesus is for family, but, but sometimes family becomes our idol. And I love my wife. I love my children. God's helping me love my family. But I'll just say this. Jesus is still Lord, not my family. That is such a radical message in the South. Because we like worship family in the South. I mean, it's like we venerate family. But, but there are times that he just drops a sword, he says, right in the midst of all of that. And, and whatever brings... then that's the Nazarite vow. He was saying, even if your parents were to die... Now, this is Old Covenant. He says, he says, you're not even to touch them or deal with it. it he, he's simply saying, you are as unto me. And as difficult as this is, and every time I, I teach it, it's just, it just brings people to this really hard spot. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter whether, whether it's your husband or your wife. It doesn't matter if it's your parents or your kids. It doesn't matter. Jesus is first. He's first. First. Now, does he want marriages whole and healed? Certainly he does. Does he want everybody to be in unity? Certainly he does. But the unity isn't, I'm going to give in to my heathen family member so there's unity. That's not godly unity. That's why he said that the wife certainly sanctifies the husband and vice versa in this regard. But the truth of the matter is that doesn't mean you get to rebel or disobey God. This is what this is saying. That's the separation. Luke 9, 59. Can you post that? But then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Verse 60. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. Sometimes we justify our half-heartedness or even our unrighteousness on family. Come on now, family can't circumvent the will of God. Anything that brings death, you shall not touch. I, and again, there are times that, yeah, you'll aggravate people in your own family tree. Jesus aggravated people in his own family tree. I mean, it's just, it's a part of the package. They're in darkness. You're in light. Darkness, light. Think about that. There's going to be some natural uh, alienation that comes out of that. So just practical considerations. Are there things in your life, listen, that might be legal and in some circumstances good, but it leads you to death? Don't touch it. Stay away from it. This is just a template. I got to stop. It's time to stop. But this is just a template. Listen, I'm not, I, don't walk out of here and say, pastor said we should all take Nazarite vows. I did not say that. Get you a haircut. It isn't about whether you get a haircut or not. I don't want these young people going, Charles, you don't go home, Charles. You don't look at your mom and dad and say, I don't have to get a haircut now because I'm taking my Nazarite vow. Yeah. That's not what we're saying. We're not, that's not, hey, we're, we're talking the spirit of a Nazarite. See, that's what we are talking about. And, and it's a template in order that we might become vessels of honor 
Think about, one more time, think about all of those names I just mentioned to you and how God used them in such amazing ways. I understand God uses the unqualified. He uses the, 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 the weak things and the base things. And, and I'm so glad for that because, because he uses the foolish things, I qualify. And I'm glad for that. But, but, but we're not under, we're not under uh, uh, edict from the Lord to remain foolish. We may be a foolish thing. But truth is, God wants to raise us up with wisdom and understanding. And, and a part of that is when I think we, we come to the place where we say, Lord, this is as unto you. Strip me now of those things that cause me to dishonor you. I, wa- I don't want to be a Dixie cup anymore. I want to be a crystal goblet. Yeah, a Dixie cup will hold some things, but a crystal goblet. Wow, a crystal goblet. It goes, it go, see, crystal goblets go to the palace. Now, Dixie cups will go to a few picnics. And people need Jesus at picnics, I know. But God's looking for some goblets that can go to some palaces. Amen? And that's, and if I have my choice, then Lord, help me be the goblet. Amen. All right, come on, let's get a bunch of crystal goblets standing tonight. Amen.